Bibles tonight, if you would please, and open to Philippians chapter 2, second chapter of Philippians. And tonight we look at one of these statements in the Bible where people kind of scratch their heads and they wonder, is this really what the Bible means? Do I really understand what I've just read? I mean, are the scriptures correct in what they say here? And people think, well, you know, I've always thought or been taught all of my Christian life that salvation is by God's grace alone. And here we have scripture that seems to say that works have something to do with my salvation. And so there's confusion about this and about these two verses that we're going to talk about tonight. And in some ways they are a paradox or they're looked at that way. One says that we are to work out our salvation and the other one says that it's God who works in us. So which of those two verses is right? I mean, does the Bible contradict itself? Or is there actually a way that we can reconcile what the Word of God says here so that both of these scriptures are true? Well, I think all of you really know the answer to that. The Bible is never contradictory. And if you run across two verses that seem to be in conflict with one another, then usually the problem is that of misinterpretation. Although there are some times when we read things in the Bible that we just have to acknowledge that God's ways are above our ways and we may not understand how these things fit together, but we accept them as true because God said them and then we know that sometime later, we don't know when, that God will resolve all conflicts that we don't understand. One of the most common conflicts that we run into is where does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility meet? Or do they actually meet, or don't they meet? The Bible says very clearly that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that it's impossible for anyone to come to Christ unless God first works in their heart to cause them to come. But at the same time, the Bible says that humans are responsible. We're commanded to repent, and we're all told that we must come to Christ. It's our responsibility to repent of our sins. So how do we reconcile that? So that seems to be a paradox to us. But truthfully, denying either side of that question will not solve the problem. If you deny God's sovereignty on one side and deny human responsibility on the other side, then you're just going to run into conflict in other places. Well, what we want to do tonight is to look at these two verses and see if we can resolve what seems to be a conflict. So we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. If you'd stand with me, please. We have just uh, two verses to read here, verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everyone who's come this evening to hear your word. Help us to understand what you'd have us to know tonight. And Lord, uh, may we learn something from your word that will help us to be better Christians and understand your will and your word better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On Sunday morning, July... 12, 1868, the great English Baptist pastor Charles Spurden was preaching from these two verses. And he started his sermon with these words. He said, I have frequently heard these words addressed to an indiscriminate audience, 
and it has always struck me that they have thereby been twisted from their right meaning. These words, as they stand in the New Testament, contain no exhortation to all men, but are directed to the people of God. They are not intended as an exhortation to the unconverted. They are, as we find them here in this epistle, beyond all question, addressed to those who are already saved through a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times, the conflicts that we have in Scripture are cleared up when we consider the context. We always have to consider the context of what's being said. Now, here Paul is writing to a church. These are born-again believers, and that's why he writes to them as the church at Philippi. These are people that have been saved under his ministry. They were saved by the grace of God through faith, just like all converts are saved and just like all people today are saved. The sovereign God had called them out to salvation by grace, and so they are saved. Now, let's, that's who it's addressed to. Let's talk about first tonight. First in your outline this evening is the work of God in salvation. Now, for these Philippians, there is no doubt about the origin of their salvation. If I were to take you back to the first time that Paul preached in the city of Philippi, the Scriptures leave no doubt about the issue of how that we receive salvation. There were two very important converts in Philippi that I like to refer to often, and one of them was the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas a question. He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that came back to him was a very pointed answer, very simple answer. Uh, They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We've never altered that message. There's not anything that we preach in Brian Baptist Church that requires us to modify Paul's answer to that question. We preach the same message to all people that if you simply will believe in Christ, you will be saved. But we also know by another convert that Paul had in in Philippi, a convert whose name was Lydia, that before a person is saved, there's actually a secret work that's going on in the soul. When Lydia was saved, the scripture says about her that the Lord opened her heart so that she attended to the words that were spoken by Paul. So God's salvation, his work in salvation, was previous to Lydia's belief. But both Lydia and the jailer did believe, and then God's word, God's salvation became effectual in their lives. And when Paul wrote to these Philippian people, these are people who have experienced God's work in their heart, and then they responded to God's work. Now, we notice here in verse number 12, two very important characteristics of God's work in salvation. The first one is, it is a personal work. Paul says, work out your own salvation. And he says, your salvation expresses that very same thought in verse number 13, when he says, it is God that worketh in you. And so in that sense, what happens to Paul as he's writing to them and talking about his prison experiences, whatever happens to him or whatever goes on in his life will not change the fact that their salvation is a personal salvation. God has done the work for for them. Uh, Paul didn't save them. It was not Paul's work. Uh, They received this from God and was not something that Paul could manufacture. So they need to understand, first of all, that when Paul writes to them and tells them all the things that are going on, that if something happens to him, it will not affect their salvation. 
Now, they're saved just as much as Paul was, and so he encourages them. You obeyed God while I was there, and so now that I'm absent, continue to keep up that good work of trusting the Lord. Keep up that righteous work, because that work is just as much yours as it is mine. Now, salvation is not built upon the personality of others. Now, sometimes this happens. There's a very dynamic preacher or pastor in a church... And people go to that church because they like that preacher's personality. But if something happens to him and he decides to leave the church or perhaps he were to fall into sin, then people who are following that pastor and following the personality think that they simply can't go on. They stop going to church. They fall out. They quit because the preacher is not there or because he's done something wrong. They may be angry at the hypocrisy that's there. Sometimes they'll look at a leader in the church and they're very disappointed in them when they find out that that leader might not be everything that they expected them to be. Or it could even be that there's somebody in the church, some members of the church that are engaged in some kind of activity that shouldn't go on. And so when they see that happen, then they get turned off to their religion, turned off to their Christianity, and people just drop out of church. Well, our faith is not built upon what others do. Your faith can't be built upon what the preacher does. You can't look to me. Uh, you're, You're not dependent upon anything that I do. Now, preachers can help you. Sunday school teachers help you. The deacons are are a a great uh, asset to us. They're very valuable. But nobody else in the church is the basis of your faith. Your Christian life is not dependent upon them, and it will not stop because of them. This is a personal salvation, and so that means that it's between you and the Lord. It also means that you have no excuse not to live out your faith, no matter what anybody else does. You are personally accountable to the Lord. And so when someone else falls, someone you look to, someone you have confidence in, maybe they don't do what they're supposed to do, that shouldn't affect your faith at all. You are responsible to God yourself. And this is what Paul is telling them. He says, now whether I'm present or whether I'm absent, you shouldn't be affected. You're serving God. What happens to me doesn't matter. You have to go on because this is your salvation. Now the next thing that we see uh, in this verse is that uh, God's salvation is a practical work. Now, our, our salvation may produce in us very sublime thoughts and lofty ideals, and I certainly hope that it does in you, but our salvation is not ethereal. It's not wispy thoughts that's not built on something that really has substance. God's salvation is a very practical salvation. It involves an inward change, I mean, there's a work, a secret work that goes on in the heart like we talked about a moment ago. And then when God changes you to become a Christian, that's something that people can't see. I mean, there's no tangible substance there that you can touch or feel. That's a secret work that goes on. But that change that takes place in your heart does produce an outward effect. And so even though you can't see the real substance of what's happened in you, that thing is spiritual, but you can see the effects of it. Jesus compared the inward workings of the Holy Spirit to the wind. He was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, you know, the wind blows where it wants. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where the wind goes. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of it. And so when God regenerates us, when he enables us to repentance and faith, we act upon that, that, those graces that are inward. But the thing that we need to understand, though, is that repentance and faith are just two of the graces of the Spirit. 
God doesn't want us to stop with that. Now, we see the effects of those two things, repentance and faith. There's an inward work that goes on, and we see the effects of it. It's, it's, it, it's worked into our initial salvation, but God doesn't stop with that. God says repentance and faith are not enough for you. Repentance and faith, in that sense, can only affect you. It doesn't affect anybody else. Now, let's remember exactly where we are in Philippians chapter 2. This chapter begins with arguments for unity. The exhortation here is for every believer to have the mind of Christ... And what Paul does here in this chapter, he hones in on that character of Christ, the humility of Christ that caused him to leave heaven and come to this earth to die for our sins. I mean, that's what that whole interlude there was about the condescension of Christ. He was willing to step off the throne of glory. And because Christ was willing to do that for others, that's an example for us to think of others, to esteem others better than ourselves. So Christ came off that throne to be a servant to others. So what we're doing here is we don't disconnect verses 12 and 13 from what's taking place in the rest of the chapter. Verses 12 and 13 are actually the practical application of what happens in the first part of the chapter. And so Paul shows us that even though we have this inward working of grace, the repentance and faith that we have in initial salvation, yet that's always to show on the outside in our practical Christian living. So that's what Paul means when he says, work out. He doesn't say, work for your salvation, as some people would try to twist that. And that's why I brought up Spurgeon's quote in the very beginning. This is written to Christians. These are people that are saved. So he doesn't tell them to work for their salvation. He doesn't say, work toward your salvation. He says, work out your own salvation. And that's because it's something that's already in you. So you don't stop with those graces of repentance and faith. You work out all of the good things that go with that that have been enabled by your salvation. Now that leads us into the second area, and that is the work of man in sanctification. Now I want you to pay close attention to me that you don't get confused about this. As I was going over this sermon myself and looking over what uh, I intended to present, I kind of got confused at first. And uh, so I had to look at it again and say, is that what I really intend to say? And I kind of had to think through things here to understand it a little bit better. So listen to me closely so that you don't get confused. Arthur Pink has an excellent book on the doctrine of sanctification. And one of the things that he points out is that the Spirit has supplied all things that are necessary in Christ for our sanctification. Now, in this sense, sanctification is complete. It's complete by Christ's satisfaction of God's law. Now, we all know that we are justified by faith. Justification is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, and that is because of Christ's satisfaction of the law as well. Uh, That's the legal aspect of salvation that's been satisfied in justification. But also, we are sanctified by Christ's righteousness, and that is sufficient for our sanctification, and even more than sufficient for our entire holiness of our Christian lives. Now, there's some people who say that that God's law has been set aside by Christ's death. The law never plays any part at all in our salvation. And we're kind of careful about that sometimes, that we make sure that we tell people that you can't be saved by what you do, and, and that's the absolute truth. But we never want to get the idea that the law of God does not play a part in salvation. 
Now, to say that it doesn't is wrong on, on lots, of, uh, lots of levels, not the, which, not the least of which that Paul says the law is holy and just and good. So it'd be hard to imagine that God would set aside or he would abandon something that is holy and righteous and good. But we also understand that Christ's work is so complete in our salvation that we never have to add anything to it. And so that's why that we're never justified by the law and neither can we be sanctified by anything that we do. Our works do not produce sanctification. And if we think that work is what does that, then all we're doing is manufacturing holiness that's not acceptable to God. And usually that just leads us into deeper sin and it produces a wrong attitude that builds a standard of holiness that's our standard rather than God's standard. Now, in this sense then, when we say that a person is sanctified when he trusts Christ, we mean that his sanctification is complete. But that's not all that we have to recognize. We recognize what God does in salvation is to impart to us a new nature. Now, the old nature is still there. It doesn't go out until we die. And whenever we work according to the old nature alone, then the only thing that we could ever work out of it is sinfulness. Now, because we have a new nature, though, we can work out of the new nature the righteousness of Christ. The fruits of righteousness come out of our new nature. So you can't work sin out of the new nature because that is a divine nature. But what you have to be very careful about this, and some people misunderstand, is that it's not the same thing. I have not said tonight that the new nature cannot sin. The Bible never talks about it that way. It speaks about the person who sins. It doesn't say whether it's your old nature or your new nature that sins. It's the person that sins. And the reason that's so important is that no one can say, well, I have an excuse for my sin. God's left that old nature in me. He didn't take it away from me. And that old nature is what sins, and so I have a right to sin. I can't help my sin because the old nature is still there. Well, that would make as much sense as if we were to say, well, if I could clean up that old nature... If I could do something with it, then I would stop sinning. But what God never does, he never reforms the old nature. Salvation is not sprucing up man's old nature. Salvation is when God gives you a new nature that's created in righteousness and holiness. But that new nature is new in another sense, and that is that when you receive your new nature, it's not yet fully developed. Now, you're born with the old nature. I think we understand that. But it would be foolish for me to say that the little babies over there that we have in the nursery, all of those little babies are murderers and they're thieves and they're liars. All of the potential for that's there. All of the potential is there, but none of them have committed such things yet because that old nature that they have has not yet developed. Now, as they get older and they begin to sin... And the more sin that they get into, the more the old nature is exercised and the more that that old nature develops. Now, this is one of the reasons why that we say that a person who has that old nature or every person born into the world is totally depraved. But total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be. Some people are worse than others, and that's because they have developed more of that old nature. They've gone into sin more. But every faculty of that old nature 
is depraved. That's what total depravity means. There is no faculty that we have that is not sinful. Well, similarly, the, uh, the new nature is, is total in its kind. Every faculty of the new nature is new. Your mind, your conscience, and your will, everything that was debilitated by the fall has been re-enabled when God gives you that new nature. So everything is there, but everything is not yet fully developed. And so man's part in sanctification is to develop that new nature. It's to exercise it, to develop it fully to where it serves God in the way that it should. Now, I want to give you three ways that you develop your new nature. The first one is that you give all submission to God's will. That's what we call our Christian obedience. The submission of Christ is the example, and it was so complete that it led him to the cross. The practical demonstration of that is what we find in verses 6 through 8. That's what we mean. When Jesus stepped down from glory, he became incarnate so that he could become a sacrifice for sin. If you remember, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the thing that he prayed for was that God's will would be done. And so there was never a chance that Jesus would try to slip away quietly in the night when he knew that those Jews were coming to take him. When Judas walked up to kiss him, Jesus wasn't surprised about that. He wasn't surprised at betrayal. He fully expected it because his hour was come. It would have been prophesied a thousand years before it ever happened. Psalmist said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. So the complete submission of Christ is what led him to the cross. And that's what Paul says in verse number 8 of this chapter. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For the Philippians then, working out their salvation means that they would submit to the will of God in the same way that Christ submitted to God's will. That's what Paul did. He was in submission to what God would have him to do. And this is the same thing that he tries to teach the the Philippians to do. So whatever Christ did because he was submissive, then we ought to submit our will to God's will. And we notice that when Paul prayed in chapter 1, if you remember when we talked about that, that Paul's prayer was not about deliverance from prison. He wasn't concerned with that. But he encouraged the Philippians to be prepared because they could very possibly experience the same things because of the gospel. So Paul talks about his prison experience, and if we could transpose chapter 2 over to chapter 1, then he would say in verse number 1, verse 12, that I worked out my salvation. It worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. His prison experience worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. Then he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name. Now I hope that you see how this starts to fit together. You exercise your new nature, first of all, by submitting to God's will. And when you do that, it may lead you through some very dark valleys, and may take you into some very dangerous places. But you say the same thing that David said, Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The second way that you develop the new nature is to give up all opposition to his ways. Now, probably the greatest truth that you'll ever learn as a Christian is that everything that is not God's way 
is opposed to your best interest. Every sin that you commit is harmful. I've never heard a Christian say, never heard a testimony that said, well, I disobeyed God, but everything worked out fine. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. There was a uh, piece of gossip that was going around the church. Finally, it made it all the way to my door. It's a shame that there are so many Christians that would rather sing like Frank Sinatra. Start spreading the news. That's what they'd rather do. And rather than, you know, shut up, keep the thing quiet, bring it to my office so that I can deal with it there, some people would rather just be involved in the gossip trail. Well, what happens when that gossip finally does reach my door, everybody who's in the gossip trail gets caught red-handed and they get very embarrassed that they were a part of it. It works out that way every time. When you try to make an end run around God's ways, you're going to run into trouble. And it happens in every area of life. The scripture says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And David wrote, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Well, if everything that God says is right, then everything that's opposed to God's way has to be wrong. And so in everything that you do, you stop to consider, is this God's way? Will this action or will this activity match up with God's precepts? And that's the very reason why a Christian never abandons the law. He never abandons God's commandments or abandons God's word because it is binding on us today. It's binding on us or else we would never know the difference between right and wrong. We couldn't determine what false ways are. So man's work in sanctification is to exercise that new nature by giving up all opposition to God's way. Now, the old nature is just fine with that. The old nature loves to oppose God. In fact, that's the old nature's roadmap. And a man, whenever he's told to do what's right, he wants to go his own way. He walks in the opposite direction of the way that God wants him to, just like he was born to it. And why does he do it? Because he was born to it. That's exactly the way he's going to live. But you have a new nature when you get saved. You're born again, which means that you can stop opposing God's way. This is never God saying to you, I, would, I, I want to make your life miserable. I mean, it's my object here to make your life miserable. No, when we go God's way, God says, I, I want to bless you. I want to lift you up. I want to make you happy in your life. You know, we never would have believed that it's possible that following God's way could ever make us happy. But it does. Now, you find out when you get saved that you can, if you want, oppose God's will. You can oppose God's way if you choose to do so, but you'll never be happy. And that's because salvation is designed for God's way and not for your way. And so if you don't follow his way, you'll never be happy. Now, the third thing that we do to develop the new nature is to give all appreciation for his work. How do you work out your salvation? Well, you start thinking about what Christ did for you. I don't know how a Christian can forget that, but, but often it seems that we do ignore it. When we give in to the old nature, that's when we're forgetting what Christ did for us. Now, what Christ did was by God's divine power. Peter was writing about that, and he says that God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. 
And so he said the thing that you need to do is that you need to start adding all these Christian virtues to your faith. And he was really saying the same thing that Paul says here in Philippians. He was telling them to work out their salvation. And he said the way that you do that is you add virtue. And to your virtue you add knowledge. And then you add temperance. And you add godliness. You add brotherly kindness. You add love. And then he made another statement after he said all of that. He said, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And so, when you don't show the proper appreciation for what Christ has done for you, it's an indication that you have forgotten why he went to the cross. And you have forgotten that, that suffering, indescribable suffering, that he went through for you to pay for your sins. And the question is, can't you show some appreciation for what God has done? Don't you, can't you do that by just living for him? In Titus 2.14, uh, Titus, uh, Paul gives us a, another explicit reason for, for the death of Christ on the cross. He said, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So why does he say that Christ went to the cross? For this purpose, to bring you out of that sinful life and to make you someone who's zealous to do God's work. So you appreciate what God has done by doing everything that you do in your Christian life for him. That's your part in sanctification. That's how you work out your salvation. You're working out what God has put on the inside. Then he follows that up. He says, do it with fear and trembling. And that means that we have an awesome reverential fear for God. It's fear that produces in us total humility, humbly, bowing before the one who gave us all for us. Now, thirdly, we come to the work of God in sanctification. Now, here's where our paradox clears up when we consider that both man and God have work to do in sanctification. So our text verse say, says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what God does in our lives, he starts purging everything from us that doesn't look like Jesus. That process is what we call being conformed to the image of Christ. Now let me back up for just a minute to the first point of the message, which was about God's work in salvation. And this next point that I have to give you uh, is true for both God's work in salvation and also God's work in sanctification. So what is God's work in sanctification? First of all, it's the full illumination of the will. God works in you to will. What God does in your salvation is that he performs an operation on your will that changes the direction that you're headed. Jonathan Edwards described the will this way. He said, the will is the strongest inclination of the person at the time. And when you're lost, your strongest inclination is against God. Your will is the way that you go, and so your strongest inclination being against God, you will always go against God. You can't change that because you won't change it. You can't change it because you won't change it. That's a very important statement. Now, some people will ask then, well, don't you believe in a whosoever will gospel? 
Absolutely, I believe in a whosoever will gospel. I mean, it doesn't make sense at all to say I believe in a whosoever won't gospel. So yeah, I do believe in that. The only problem is that when we only have the old nature to work out of, then everybody who has that old nature is characterized or classified as a whosoever won't. They won't ever come to Christ. But then when God does a regenerating work in a person's heart, that's when you become a whosoever will. And the reason that you are is because your will has been released from the bondage that it's under. Your will was bent only one way. It's against God. But now when God comes with that regenerating work, he frees your will so that you can trust Christ. I don't have time to go into all of this tonight, but if it ties all back into the statements that we always make that regeneration logically has to precede repentance and faith. God has to regenerate for the will to be changed. Now, it's God then who works in you to will, which means that he's the one who works in you to bring you to Christ. So that's God's working on the will and salvation. But as I said, this also holds true for sanctification because God is working in you to will and your sanctification as well. God's will is always working in you and enabling you and causing you to persevere. I was once asked this question. If God's will is irresistible in salvation, then why is it not irresistible after salvation? It's plainly obvious that Christian people go against the will of God in their lives. So how is it irresistible before salvation or at the point of salvation, but it's not irresistible after salvation? Well, the problem is in understanding what we mean by irresistible. A better way to state it would be that God's grace is always efficacious for the sinner. It always works in the sinner. So when God comes with saving grace, he enables your will so that your natural resistance to him is no longer a barrier. And so you come to him willingly choosing life in Christ. God's not forcing you to do that, but you willingly do that because you've been able to do it. Now, you weren't enabled before, and that's because all good that's in you was debilitated by the fall of Adam. So now, once you have this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in you, and then you're saved, you're in a position where you can choose right and wrong rather than always wrong. And before you're saved, the only thing you can choose is wrong. But when you get saved, your will has been abled, so you can choose both right and wrong. Now, after you're saved, you still have that re-enabled will where you can choose right and wrong, but you're not capable to doing only what's right. That's not a capability that you have right now. You only have the capability to choose either right or wrong. So whenever you choose right after you're saved, that's God working in you to cause you to choose what's right. And whenever you choose what's wrong after you're saved, you're still working according to that old nature that's still inside of you. The ability to choose only what's right, and that's really what that question was about, the ability to choose only what's right will not come until you leave this life until you leave this body behind. And that's because the old nature is always there, and it will be there, it will be operating throughout your Christian life until this body goes into the grave. And then when you die, you are raised incorruptible, and then you have the ability to choose only what is right. And that's because the old nature has been taken completely away from you. So the body of sin, the corruption has been destroyed 
and what's raised is incorruptible. So that, that answers the question. Why is God's grace not irresistible after you get saved? It's because you have been enabled with a will that can choose right or wrong, but it can't choose only right all of the time because the new nature is still there. Now, when I say it can't choose, don't think you have an excuse. You're always to work out of the new nature. Now, finally, then God's will in sanctification is the full intention of the Father. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the ultimate end of salvation, justification, sanctification, repentance and faith, all the graces that God gives, the ultimate end of it is that God has good pleasure. God's delight is to see every son made like his only son. And so the more that you become like Christ, you could say that pleasure meter of God keeps going up. So when you're humble... That pleases him because Christ was also humble. When you deny yourself, it pleases God because Christ denied himself. When children obey their parents, it pleases God because Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father. In the book of Colossians, it tells us that a child's obedience is well-pleasing to the Lord. When you're good to others, it pleases God because Christ spent his life doing good to others. When you act like a servant... And you bend down and you wash another's feet, symbolically, of course. When you do that, then God is pleased with that because that is exactly what Christ did. So on and on we could go. Every good thing that Christ did, which was only good, of course, pleased the Heavenly Father. And everything that you do that's Christ-like also pleases the Heavenly Father. So the full intention of the Father is to bring you into that conformity with Christ. And so the Father's role in sanctification is to make you like his Son. So practical Christianity might appear to us to be paradoxical. The good things that you do, you must do. God doesn't do them for them for you. You're the one that has to do them. You work those things out. And yet the good things that you do are because God is working in you. He's the one that's working them out. And so here we have a case where human responsibility meets God's sovereignty, and both are absolutely true. This is the paradox of practicing Christianity. Both things are true. You work it out, but God works his will in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given tonight, and I just pray, Lord, that there's understanding over the things that have been spoken and we thank you, Lord, for your word and what we're able to learn from it. We just ask you, Lord, to, to be with us, strengthen us, and help us to live according to that new nature that you've given us. And may we always do your work. May we look at every activity and say, is this pleasing to the Lord? So that we do only those things that will please you. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's